0: I am so happy to be here. I hope you are. We have a little bit of a thinned audience. I think we have a lot of people enjoying spring break, um, including a number of teenagers who are in Guatemala. Thanks to my son Oliver for pinging my phone at 1246 to wake me up, to let me know they landed. Everything's fine. They're there. So just consider with me for a moment a line of one of those songs that we just sang. Even in your suffering... You saw to the other side. How great is it that Jesus did not pause, that he didn't stop, that he didn't give up when it was hard, but instead, he saw through to the other side? That's awesome. That's so awesome. So join with me in prayer as we start. Uh, you can turn in your Bible to John chapter 12, or if you want one of those little black pew Bibles, uh, John 12 is located on page 898. I had to look that up. Father, we come this morning before you hungry. We come ready, but we also come apathetic. We also come unrepentant. We also come hard. So Holy Spirit, soften us. Make us good soil to receive what we need to receive that our lives would reflect you more accurately. Amen. William Porter, probably better known by his pen name, O. Henry, tells the story of a young couple in the early 1900s, Della and Jim. They were very poor, but very much in love. Each of them had one unique possession. Della had her hair, and it was glorious. Think Macy Nafziger, hair all the way down to here. It's like a robe, okay? Jim had a gold watch, which had come to him from his father and was a family heirloom. It was the day before Christmas, and Della had come to realize that she only had $1.87 with which to buy Jim a Christmas present. So she went out and had her beautiful hair cut and sold for $20. With the proceeds, she purchased a platinum chain that Jim could attach to his watch in order to hold it. When Jim came home that evening and saw Della's head now exposed, he was stopped in his tracks. Not because he didn't find her lovely, for hair was really no matter to him. It was the fact that what he held in his hands was a wrapped set of tortoise shell combs with jewels on the edges for which Della could comb her hair. Each had given their most unique and prized possession out of love for the other. And so this morning, we're going to be talking a little bit about that. We're going to talk about the idea that the death of Jesus invites a sacrificial response. Now, when we read through this in this text, there's a couple of characters. There's Uh, The people who are throwing the party, there's Mary, there's Judas, there's Jesus, and we're going to touch on all of them, but really we're going to be parking on Mary and Jesus the most. So let's dive right in, chapter 12 of John, and I'll just read the first eight verses, it'll be real quick. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So Micah, if you remember, left us last week with this simple question, do you believe this? Just real simple, and it was all connected to this idea of Lazarus being raised from the dead and, and Martha and Mary, particularly Martha, displaying like, Lord, if you had been here, it wouldn't have happened. Like she had faith. And so, Michael is asking us this question to just hold in our hearts this week Do you believe this? And so, we're right on the heels of that, not long after Jesus had raised him from the dead. And Jesus is returning back through Bethany, and they're throwing a party for him. They're having a dinner party. And we'll get to why that's a little challenging here in just a minute. But let's just read the rest. It says So they gave him a dinner, they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. We really don't have a context for that in the 21st century, do we? When was the last time you cleaned someone's feet with your hair? It's just We'll get, again, to the cultural significance of that in just a moment. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii, it's about a year's worth of wages, and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. And Jesus said, leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with me, but you do not always have me. So we're going to be looking at four different things today. First, uh, the idea that the people party. They, they throw a celebration. Then we're going to look at how Mary anoints and how Judas critiques and then how Jesus explains. But let's start first with the people. We're six days before Passover here. So it's, it's right at the beginning of Holy Week. We're just like just about there. And it says that they threw a Passover, or or sorry, they threw a party for him or, or threw a dinner there, which you might be thinking, well, big deal. And I'm going to tell you, it's a huge deal because of the risk that was involved. And you could see it in John 11. It's right after Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. Then it says the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they began to get a little upset. And their first goal was like, hey, we're going to start making plans to kill this guy says that in John eleven fifty three 53. And if you scroll forward a few more verses to 57, it says they also mentioned that if anybody knew the whereabouts of Jesus, they were to explain that, to give him up, to offer him and say, hey, here's this Jesus. I know where he's at. So there's an arrest and a kill order out on Jesus. And what do his friends do? Let's make a big deal about Jesus. Let's have him over for dinner. Let's invite people in. Like, they took a huge risk by saying, let's have Jesus for dinner. I love it. I love that they're not going to back away from the authorities. They're not going to just cower. But they're like, no, what he's done deserves recognition. So they take a huge risk. And then in verse 2, we see that Mar- Martha was serving, which people kind of pit Martha against Mary. Like, and Micah talked about this last week. Um, and I want to speak to that just a little bit. They, they say, well, you know, in Luke 10, I think it's 38 through 42, it talks about this idea that Martha is serving and Mary is at the feet of Jesus. And, and Martha's upset that her sister's not helping, so she's griping about it. And, and Jesus says, look, what, what Martha or Mary is doing is actually she's chosen the better thing. Um, Jesus doesn't condemn her desire for service. He just actually says, uh, the problem is that Martha was serving at the expense of abiding. That one kind of hurts a little bit, especially in a context where we are part of a church where most of what we do is is run by lay people who come and give of their time and their effort. and, And pretty quickly, it's easy to make serving into our primary identity. And so Jesus is just giving this real gentle statement here that says, Uh, don't serve at the expense of abiding. Abide through your service. And, And Martha must have learned her lesson because in Luke 10, when she's serving, she gets rebuked. But here in John, she doesn't. So she must have been able to serve in a way that was honoring the Lord and not at the expense of abiding. I love that. Here's the the thing that has been getting me for the last two weeks as I've been praying through and preparing this message. What's Lazarus doing? Feel free to answer. I like participation. What's he doing? Okay. When was the last time someone did something incredible for you and you're like, I'm just going to take a load off? He raised him from the dead. He was dead, now alive. And that like Jesus comes in, there's like this dinner party. What what would you do? I'd be like, man, can I get you something? Are you thirsty? Can I take your sandals? Maybe I could wash your feet. Like, can I do something? And he's reclining. Really? He's reclining. I love that. And maybe just a truth to life, a real simple question for us is this. Let me just ask you. If the Lord raised you from the dead, would you recline? Because not even figuratively, but literally speaking, Colossians 2 talks about how we were dead and then made alive together with Christ because the record of our debt that stood like a, a total announcement on a white wall, dug is guilty, has been canceled by Jesus Christ. And so from death now I come to life, and I'm asked to recline. I'm asked to rest. Holy cow, that's crazy. Do we really get the significance of that? Ephesians 2.5 says that you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and that God made you alive together with Christ. I've often said this before, and even from this pulpit, do dead people make choices? And the answer is not really. Um, they're pretty much out of options at that point. So, so, the fact that he woke us up, gave us faith, and here we are, raised from the dead, and, and somehow we think that we're going to contribute something to our salvation is just silly. What should be contributed is gratitude. So, the people party, and they take great risk for Jesus. I love that. And then we get to Mary in verse 3. It says, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So you have to kind of get a picture here of of a vial that has a long neck and the only way that the ointment, which is somewhat thick, uh, has to come out is, is the breaking of the neck of that so that it is no longer anything that you can put back. You can't, you can't break the neck of, of, the, of the vial and then somehow get it to come back in. It's out there. And so she's all in. She, she goes all in and she, and she anoints him with this expensive ointment. We learn from Judas that it could have been sold for 300 denarii, which is roughly a year's wages. Now, I don't know about you, um, But if you follow the Dave Ramsey plan, you might have six to nine months of your wages stored up. But how many of us have a year's worth of wages to just give away on the spot? I mean, it's significant what she's doing. And actually, one of the things that I've been really convicted by, some scholars actually say, that what she's bringing would, would effectively act as a dowry. Now, we think of a dowry like uh, you know, something that uh, in, in ancient times, uh, a gentleman would seek the hand of another woman in marriage, and he would pay a dowry for her in order to, um, to offset costs in a family. But actually, in, in first century Palestine, it was everything that the woman would bring to the marriage, all of her possessions and her finances— And so, some people suggest that what Mary is doing here is it's like an act of a dowry, it's an offering. So, it's a tremendous act of uniting and and consecrating and putting together. She's saying essentially this I'm linked to Jesus, I am totally and entirely devoted to Him. I don't care who sees. I don't care who sees. And so then she anoints his feet and wipes them with her hair. So all of them, just imagine the situation. They're all around a table. And, and not like a table like we think, like you're, 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 sit, you're seated and you have a chair pulled up. But when you're reclining at table, in ancient Jewish uh, practice, is the, the table's low. And so you're actually leaning on one side, kind of like half laying. So his feet are behind him. Mary comes up and she breaks this... Uh, that, this vial and she puts the ointment on jesus feet and she starts wiping his feet with her hair and you're like well why is that so significant because in first century palestine no respectable woman would ever appear in public with her hair down she just wouldn't in fact on the day that a girl was married her hair was bound up to never be let down again in public so think about that for a minute. The implication is you are too young and not yet married, so it would have been pretty recognizable. A six-year-old girl with her hair down was pretty obvious, right? But you start getting to like 18, 20, 30-year-old woman, and her hair is down, you know what that's a sign of in first-century Palestine? She's an immoral woman. Whether she's had lots of extramarital affairs or whether, more likely, she is a prostitute or a sex worker. And you're like, whoa. So what Mary is doing is so significant because she's using her hair in a way that everybody around her would be like, is this woman really doing what she, like, does she understand what she's doing? She comes across as an immoral woman doing this. She doesn't care. She just doesn't. And then it says the house was filled with, with the fragrance of the perfume. And really, it's no wonder. <laughs> you don't really have to think too hard about why it would be. It's, it's, her hair is now filled with the ointment. So wherever she goes, right? It's the aroma of the perfume is following her. It's going before her. Consider a junior high boy who got a little bit too happy with his can of Axe spray. Okay? But like, more holy. <laughs> okay? So here's, here's this woman, and she's like... When Paul says in in Corinthians, the aroma of Christ, do you think he has this in mind? Do you think he's considering someone who's broken an expensive vial of everything they have to offer, and they're saying, I'm all for you, Jesus. And then their life just exudes it. Every one of their words, their actions, the way they love other people is just so powerful. And then Paul says, yes, we are the aroma of Christ, So put that ointment in my hair. What little is left of it. So maybe truth to life, here's a good question then. What of great cost and at great risk are you willing to give Jesus, no matter what? And I mean like no matter who knows, no matter who sees, no matter who judges, no matter who like casts you out, no matter who thinks you're crazy, what are you willing to say, I'm actually for Jesus more than I'm for my own reputation? Or maybe you're here going, I don't know, I mean, I'm what about like your career? Are you willing to give Jesus your career? To do day in and day out what would be pleasing to him? Across the board. Maybe he's asking for your reputation, maybe he's asking for your obedience. I'm not sure what it is, but I will say this. He is asking for something that requires great risk and great sacrifice. And then we come to Judas. So the people partied, Mary anoints, and then Judas is over here throwing shade. Not super helpful. He's, he's going to make his comments. It says in verse 4, Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And then the reason for saying it is obvious because, hey, that's cutting into his profit margin. That term, he used to have charge of the money bag in the Greek, actually means um, to lift or carry or to carry off. And so Judas like did both. He carried the money bag and he carried off the contents of the money bag for himself. It's kind of a powerful word picture. But here's Judas scolding Mary for an improper use of funds. And the rest of us here with the advantage of now 2,000 years of church history and the written scriptures are like, really, Judas? (laughs) You're going to scold her on the improper use of funds? You who were lifting from the money bag for a ministry? This is not unlike today where we see large ministry personalities just taking advantage of the funding that's given and using it for their own gain. And here's Judas scolding Mary for what was beautiful. I think by comparison, it's almost laughable because she gave such a significant sum, literally all she had. And later, Judas sells Jesus for less than half that amount. We're actually inside a week now, so it's probably probable that... uh, that Judas already had his conversation and has already made his financial arrangement with the, with the leaders of the Jewish people in order to betray Jesus. So he already knows that he's selling Jesus for less than half of what he's scolding her for. Man, how duplicitous and how uh, conniving and how pride-filled is this guy. And when I say this guy, I mean me. How often am I like that? I love how John describes it in verse 3 as expensive ointment. And then when he quotes Judas, Judas doesn't even note that it's expensive. He just says, eh, this ointment. Judas doesn't even note the sacrifice that it is for Mary. He just notes, look what's happening here. What in the world? You're giving this up? Seriously? And he treats her so poorly. It's amazing how Jesus sees what Mary did as a wonderful offering. Judas sees the same event, and he sees it as extravagant waste. What's the difference? How in the world could both sets of eyes see the same act and come up with two wildly different conclusions? I would just say this, from a truth-to-life perspective, I think Judas' view of Mary's actions is warped by what's on the inside. You know, 1 Samuel 16, 7 says that man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And then in the New Testament, Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees, and he says in, in Luke 16, 15, You are those who justify yourselves before men, right? But God sees your hearts. First of all, that's a little terrifying. Can we agree? <laughs> can we agree that like uh, God can look like right into the heart of any one of these boys sitting in the third row and he can like see every bit of their actions and intentions. That's really scary. And I think when, when we start to consider why that's so significant and why it's so important, I would just say this. He looks into the heart and he sees the seat of our motives you know, Luke 6, Matthew 12, there's, there's places where it talks about from out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, or you can't bring good fruit from a bad tree because like fruit always goes from root to fruit. So whatever's at the root, you're going to see the fruit, right? And the fruit is never the first thing to show up on the tree. It takes time. It has to be nurtured. It has to be cultivated. It has to be. And so Jesus is pointing to something powerful here. He knows where they really are. He knows Judas's heart. And maybe maybe this question might be a little bit more (laughs) to the point difficult, but is critique of others easier for you than sitting at the feet of Jesus? Think about that for just a minute. Is it easier for you to critique or pick apart someone's actions or someone's theology or someone's life than to sit at the feet of Jesus. Micah pointed this out last week. I thought it was an excellent point. That every place that we see Mary in the New Testament, we see her in in Luke 10, we see her in John 11, and then we see her here again in John 12. And in each case, she's at the feet of Jesus. Each case, she's at the feet of Jesus. You know, Paul says when he is uh, being persecuted, in, in the book of Acts, he talks about how he trained at the feet of Gamaliel. It's the, the term at the feet is a euphemism for a disciple of. So here's Mary giving the most expensive outpouring, all of her possession, every bit of who she is, in order to be a disciple of Jesus. She's not critiquing or picking apart like Judas is. That's a heavy statement when you think about it. Is it easier for me to just sit at the feet of Jesus or to critique how others are trying to sit at his feet? And then finally we come to Jesus. We see in verses 7 and 8 it says, Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you. But you will not always have me. I think one of the things that's interesting here is how do we make sense of that? What is what is Jesus really saying? Because clearly Jesus hasn't died yet, and clearly he hasn't been buried yet. So what is Mary doing? Do you think do we maybe it's a better thing to say it this way? Do we think Mary really understands the full ramifications of everything she's doing? No. Do you think Mary needed to understand the full ramifications of everything she was doing? I don't think so. I think what she saw was was Jesus, as he's approaching the grave, saying, I love you for what you're about to do. I don't get it all, but I love you. And I'm willing to give everything for that. She didn't know. I don't think she knew everything. I actually read this uh, summary from a commentator. He, he paraphrased verses 7 and 8 and says this. It's as though Jesus is saying, leave her alone. In God's great plan, suffering and death for sin has already begun. And this woman shows her love for me at a time when I'm already headed for the tomb. As for the poor, taking care of them is a good and biblical act. And you should do it. However, You have ample opportunity to demonstrate that concern. I'm going to be gone within a week. That's a little bit more weighty, isn't it? It's as though Jesus is saying, your sacrifice of praise, your fragrant offering is now. Not like next week, not like when you get your stuff together, not like, it's now. That's what he wants. And so Jesus just explains it that way. He accepts Mary's gift. Mary's anointing points to Christ's identity as the Messiah king. It also points forward to his humble position as servant king. Because what happens only a few days later? Jesus, in an act of sheer humility, comes walking into an upper room with 12 disciples, including the one who's going to pass him over to death, and the other 11 who, as soon as Jesus is arrested, what happens? They all flee. They're all terrified. They're all not quite sure that they want to be associated with him. And so, in a moment of fear and terror, they take off. And so, Jesus comes into an upper room to share a last supper with them, to explain everything he's about to do and experience and endure on their behalf. And he takes the position of a servant and he wraps his waist with a towel and he takes a bowl and he starts dipping feet in the bowl. Could you imagine? First of all, I don't picture that being a noisy room. I I don't particularly picture anybody being distracted. I don't see anybody posting to Instagram what's happening there. Hey, check out Jesus. It's like, no. What I see is Jesus getting down, hands and knees, washing feet. Like Mary got down, hands and feet, and gave her offering. And so Mary, in some ways, I don't think understands everything that her act is signifying. And Jesus is receiving it, saying, look, you're always going to have the poor. But I'm going to be leaving here within a week, and this act of love is tremendous. The word Messiah means anointed one. It derives... Directly from the Hebrew word for anointed, which would be the Old Testament, and it comes from the Greek word Christos, which also means anointed one. So Jesus is the Messiah. This is a powerful statement that he's making. So, then, maybe from a truth to life perspective, do you have extravagant gratitude for Jesus? Do you? If you'll dream with me for just a minute, imagine if we were a church, the hundreds of people in here, imagine if we were a people who said, like Mary, I don't care how much it costs, I don't care how much, it's, how much it is, is going to affect my social standing, I am for Jesus no matter what. Think about that. By Jesus not casting her out when she's washing his feet with her hair, do you know what Jesus says? Everybody looking on is saying, look at Mary, the immoral woman. Look at her. And Jesus is saying, breaking all cultural boundaries and receiving her with love. You're like, well, why is that significant? Have you ever committed a sin you're embarrassed of or you're filled with shame over? Have you? Have you ever willingly done something that is so shame-filled you just want to crawl into a hole and you want to die and you never want anybody to know? Anyone, ever. Have you ever done that? And here's Jesus saying, I'll take your hair down, smelling like ointment, cleaning my feet. He's receiving her. And he's, he's laying a groundwork for extravagant love back toward him. So I'm going to close, and I want to read just briefly. Throughout the New Testament, you can see in him, through Christ, because of Christ, in God, by his Spirit, all these statements about what Jesus accomplished for us. We're reading in real time in John chapter 12 and following as we're doing this Passion Narrative for our Easter series. We're reading in real time. Jesus earning that. And here are some of the past tense effects. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. John 1.12, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Galatians two twenty. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Or Ephesians 1 3 through 9, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us Through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished, not like scantily, lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. In Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Friends, this is who we are because of Christ and in Christ and what abiding Christ in Christ looks like. And we're over here at times like Judas saying, hey, couldn't that like sacrifice be given for something a little bit more meaningful? And Jesus is receiving. So make no mistake, the death of Jesus always invites a sacrificial response.